Welcome to Conference Coverage, presented by ReachMD on XM Radio and powered by Health Day, featuring the latest research findings presented at the 47th Annual Meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, held from June 3rd to the 7th in Chicago. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And I'm Sue Bird. The ASCO conference attracted more than 30,000 participants from around the world, featuring the latest advances in clinical cancer research. Topics covered in presentations included cancer-related complications, quality of life management, and end-of-life care. For androgen-deprived men undergoing hormone ablation treatment for prostate cancer, venlafaxine and soy protein do not have significant effects on hot flash symptom severity or quality of life. That's according to a study conducted by Dr. Mara Vitalins and colleagues of the Wake Forest University Baptist Medical Center. The investigators randomized 120 androgen-deprived men to one of four daily regimens for 12 weeks, placebo and casein protein, soy protein and placebo, venlafaxine and casein protein, or soy plus venlafaxine. The researchers said venlafaxine and soy protein, whether in combination or as separate treatments, don't seem to be highly effective in treating vasomotor symptoms in men. The investigators also found a strong placebo effect, a 55% decrease in hot flash symptom severity score in the group that received placebo and casein protein powder. Additionally, they found a reduction in hot flash symptoms among the two study arms undergoing treatment with venlafaxine early on. But the trend did not last, in part because the participants became non-compliant with the treatment. No universally accepted adjuvant regimen for gastric cancer currently exists, despite high recurrence rates following surgical resection. But capocytobine plus oxaloplatin, or Xalox, may soon fill this role. That's based on positive findings from the Phase three classic trial, which identified a substantial improvement in disease-free survival with adjuvant Xalox, compared with observation alone following D2 lymph node dissection. In the classic study, investigators randomized 1,035 patients with stage 2 to 3 gastric carcinoma who received D2 lymph node dissection to 8 cycles of Xalox chemotherapy or observation. The investigators found that the 3-year disease-free survival, the primary endpoint of the study, improved from 60 to 74 percent. Researchers say they expect this will become the standard of care for advanced gastric cancer to reduce recurrences and to improve the cure rate. D2 lymph node dissection is standard of care in Asia and is recommended in Europe for the surgical resection of advanced gastric cancer. This technique is not commonly employed in the United States, where postoperative chemoradiotherapy is frequently being used. Three authors disclosed financial relationships with Roche. In patients with progressive metastatic renal cell carcinoma, axitinib was shown to be more effective than sorafenib as second-line therapy. Dr. Brian Reaney of the Cleveland Clinic Tossig Cancer Institute and colleagues randomized 723 patients to receive either axitinib or sorafenib. The investigators found that median progression-free survival was 6.7 months for axitinib as compared with 4.7 months for sorafenib. The investigators also found that objective response rates were 19.4% for axitinib compared to only 9.4% for sorafenib. Hypertension, fatigue, dysphonia, and hypothyroidism were more common among those who received axitinib, while hand-foot syndrome, alopecia, rash, and anemia were more common among those who received sorafenib. Several authors disclosed financial relationships with various pharmaceutical companies, including Pfizer, 
the manufacturer of axotinib, and Bayer Healthcare Pharmaceuticals, the manufacturer of sorafenib. In families with Lynch syndrome, carriers of MLH1 and MSH2 mutations have an increased risk of cancer incidence compared to carriers of an MSH6 mutation, according to a study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association, timed to coincide with the annual meeting of ASCO. Investigators from France examined the age-specific cumulative cancer risks associated with mutations in the MLH1, MSH2, and MSH6 genes in 537 families with Lynch syndrome. A total of 248 participants with MLH1, 256 with MSH2, and 33 with MSH6 were included in the analyses. The investigators identified significant differences in cancer risk between carriers of the three mutated genes. By age 70, the estimated cumulated cancer risks for colorectal cancers were 41% for carriers of the MLH1 mutation, 48% for MSH2, and 12% for MSH6. Risks for endometrial cancer by age 70 were estimated at 54 21, and 16% for MLH1, MSH2, and MSH6 carriers, respectively. For ovarian cancer, the risks were 20, 24, and 1% for MLH1, MSH2, and MSH6 carriers, respectively. Irrespective of the gene mutation, the estimated cumulative cancer risk by age 40 did not exceed 2% for endometrial cancer or 1% for ovarian cancer, and the estimated lifetime risk for other tumors did not exceed 3%. Based on their findings, the authors say MSH6 mutations are associated with markedly lower cancer risks than MLH1 or MSH2 mutations. Another study published in JAMA noted that childhood cancer survivors have an increased risk of developing subsequent digestive and genitourinary primary neoplasms after the age of 40. Investigators from the United Kingdom assessed the long-term risks of subsequent primary neoplasms in almost 18,000 five-year survivors of childhood cancer. Participants were diagnosed with cancer before the age of 15 years, between 1940 and 1991, and were followed up through 2006. The different types of subsequent primary neoplasms were correlated with long-term excess risk. Standardized incidence ratios, absolute excess risks, and cumulative incidence of subsequent primary neoplasms were the primary outcomes measured. The investigators identified 1,354 subsequent primary neoplasms in the group, most frequently in the central nervous system, skin, digestive tract, genitourinary system, breast, and bone. An almost four-fold increase was seen in the overall standardized incidence ratio with an absolute excess risk of 16.8 cases per 10,000 persons. The authors noted that the greatest excess risk for patients older than 40 years was associated with digestive and genitourinary neoplasms. For patients with colorectal cancer, an increase in time to adjuvant chemotherapy is associated with a significant decrease in overall and disease-free survival. Investigators from Canada reviewed available literature to investigate the relationship between time to adjuvant chemotherapy and survival outcomes in colorectal cancer. Ten studies involving over 15,000 patients were included in the analysis, 
and overall and disease-free survival were the main outcomes studied. The investigators found that a four-week increase in time to adjuvant chemotherapy correlated with a significant reduction in both overall and disease-free survival. These results remain significant after adjusting for potential publication bias and after repeating the analysis to exclude studies of largest weight. The authors say these results support a position that clinicians and jurisdictions need to optimize patient flow logistics to minimize time to adjuvant chemotherapy. For the second time, results of a Phase three trial confirm the overall survival benefit conferred by ipilimumab in metastatic melanoma, this time in frontline treatment settings in combination with docarbazine. These findings may soon change the treatment landscape for metastatic melanoma by establishing ipilimumab-based therapy as a first-line regimen of choice over decarbazine, which is currently considered to be the standard of care. Dr. Jed Wolchok of the Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center presented the results of the MDX-024 study. Ipilimumab is a monoclonal antibody directed against cytotoxic T lymphocyte antigen 4, or CTLA-4, a negative regulator of T-cell activation. The agent was approved by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration in late March 2011 for the treatment of advanced melanoma based on an overall survival benefit observed in patients with unresectable stage 3 to 4 melanoma for whom previous treatment had failed. According to conference discussant Dr. Kim Margolin of the University of Washington and Fred Hutchinson Cancer Research Center, the FDA approval of ipilimumab and the positive results of the MDX-024 study represent two happy endings in the tale of advanced melanoma. She explained, Historically, we have had little to offer patients, as the supposedly standard therapies have had limited activity and substantial toxicity. The aromatase inhibitor exemestane reduces the incidence of invasive breast cancer in high-risk postmenopausal women. That's according to results of a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled Phase three breast cancer prevention trial from the National Cancer Institute of Canada. Between 2004 and 2010, the trial enrolled over 4,500 postmenopausal women who were at least age 37 and had a median age of 62, with a minimum of one additional breast cancer risk factor. During the nearly three-year follow-up period, 43 cases of invasive breast cancer were diagnosed, with 11 in the exemestane arm and 32 in the placebo arm. After a medium follow-up of 35 months, exemestane resulted in a 65% reduction in the risk of breast cancer compared with placebo. Annual incidence rates in the treatment group were 0.19% compared to 0.55% in the placebo arm. Subgroup analyses showed the superiority of exemestane over placebo across all risk groups, including Gale score, age, BMI, prior lobular carcinoma in situ, and ductal carcinoma in situ. Exemestane was associated with an increased incident of several adverse events, including hot flashes, fatigue, insomnia, gastrointestinal side effects, and arthritis. One physician commenting on the report, Dr. Andrea DeSensi, called the trial a landmark study that would likely result in a paradigm shift in breast cancer prevention. The combined use of a CA-125 blood test and transvaginal ultrasound for early detection of ovarian cancer does not appear to reduce the risk of death from the disease in the general population, 
and harm may result from diagnostic evaluation performed after false positive tests. That's according to researchers from the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Patients screened annually with CA125 antigen testing and transvaginal ultrasound actually had a slightly higher ovarian cancer mortality risk as compared with usual follow-up. Additionally, screening was associated with increased use of invasive procedures and avoidable complications related to workup following false positive results. Author Dr. Sandra Baez added that it was possible that even an optimized program of annual screening may be insufficient to detect cancers early enough to reduce mortality. Furthermore, evidence from modeling suggests that aggressive cancers progress rapidly through early stages, limiting the ability to detect these cancers with yearly screening. Human papillomavirus, or HPV testing and pap smear testing for cervical cancer screening, can be safely extended from one- to three-year intervals, according to research presented at ASCO. Researchers from the National Cancer Institute in Bethesda, Maryland, evaluated over 330,000 women aged 30 years and older who enrolled in Kaiser Permanente Northern California's co-testing program providing concurrent HPV testing with pap smear tests between 2003 and 2005 for five years. The investigators found that the five-year cancer risk for women who had a normal pap smear and tested negative for HPV was 3.2 per 100,000 women per year. HPV-negative women had half the cancer risk of women with a normal pap smear test at 3.8 versus 7.5 per 100,000 women per year, which suggested that HPV testing alone is more accurate than a pap smear alone. The cancer risks for patients receiving HPV testing alone were also comparable to HPV and pap testing combined at 3.8 versus 3.2 per 100,000. The authors say these results are a formal confirmation that the three-year follow-up is appropriate and safe for women who have a negative HPV test and normal PAP result. Additionally, these findings also suggest that an HPV-negative test alone could be enough to give a high level of security for extending the testing interval to every three years. But more evidence is needed before the practice will be routinely recommended. This conference covered from the 47th Annual Meeting of the American Society of Clinical Oncology, held from June 3rd to the 7th in Chicago, has been a presentation of ReachMD on XM Satellite Radio and by live stream at ReachMD.com and powered by Health Day 